You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this week's edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. Our podcast has been on the air for about a year and a half. As our listeners know, I have uh, the privilege of speaking with industry leaders each week about issues that move our industry forward around the confluence of digital and human advice. Ed Murphy is our guest this week. Ed is the president and CEO of Empower. He was on our very first episode way back when, and uh, he has the distinction of being our most popular podcast guest so far, by far. So I'm excited to have Ed back to provide an update on the good work Ed and his team have been doing at Empower and Personal Capital and some of their other properties. And so, Ed, welcome back to Wealth Tech on Tech. Good to have you here. Thank you, Jack. I, I hope I don't disappoint today. <laughs> Those are my expectations. <laughs> yeah, you've created a high bar, but I, I have a hunch you're going to come through. So well, thank, you. thank you. So, Ed, when we first spoke almost two years ago on this podcast, you would complete a series of deals, probably the most prominent of which at that particular time was the deal with personal capital. You had acquired a number of defined contribution players and have kind of put those all together. So let's start with you bringing us and our audience up to date on where you were then. That's, I want to say it was January, February of 2020, just before COVID hit. Yeah. And then what has transpired since? Yeah. So Jack, we acquired personal capital back in August of 20. You know, that was a really important acquisition for us in the sense that we were acquiring what we felt was continue to feel the best digital hybrid wealth management platform in the industry. And so we spent the last couple of years focused on growing that business, but also leveraging a lot of their capabilities and their technology and embedding that into our business, both into our defined contribution business and then replatforming our direct-to-consumer business which has been primarily handling customer rollover activity as they have a, a change in their life, whether it's a, a job change or retirement. And then we followed that shortly thereafter with the acquisition of Mass Mutual. I think that was April of 2021. And then following that, we bought the Prudential business. So in that period of, you know, call it roughly two years, we invested about $8 billion of capital into the Empower business. Obviously, we believe very strongly that there are tremendous growth opportunities in the U.S., both in the defined contribution space and in serving end users, whether in plan or out of plan, and helping them achieve their their investment goals and objectives. And our board and our investors obviously believe in the mission as well. So it's been a great journey the last couple of years. A lot of uncertainty, macro uncertainty in the marketplace, but it hasn't stopped us from continuing to invest in the business. So for our audience that may not follow this as closely, I've been a student of what Ed and team have been up to. I think it's just a fascinating and really super smart strategy. They bought a bunch of brand names like Prudential, Mass Mutual, many others, Putnam, the old Bear Stearns, whatever it was called after that, Fifth Third Bank, all these different defined contribution buckets of assets combined it together. They're now the second largest in terms of defined contribution, if I have that correct, behind Fidelity. So they have all these assets, and then they made the personal capital acquisition. Talk about that strategy, because I thought it was brilliant at the time. It sounds like it's played out further, but maybe talk about some of the things you had to do to bring it together, because acquisitions sound great, make great headlines, but they're hard to do, having lived through some of that in my past. So talk about that a little bit, how you brought it together. You know, when you think about the 
acquisitions that we've done, there's the scale acquisitions that really allow us to kind of leverage the investments that we've made in our infrastructure. And I would say we're very good at that. We've got a really solid team. And if you look at the team, for instance, that worked on the JP Morgan transaction back in 2015 when we bought the JP Morgan business, it's that same team that's been executing on Mass Mutual and Prudential. And we released our results a few weeks ago on Mass Mutual, and it was by all accounts, very successful. It exceeded all of our expectations. We retained 87% of the revenue, 92% of the participants, 90% of the plans. And uh, as you know, those customers, there were 26,000 of them, they have, in effect, a fiduciary obligation to check the market, to go out to bid. Uh, Just because Empower acquired the business doesn't obligate them to come to us. We have to earn the business. And so it's a real testament to the Empower team and what we were able to do there. So you're exactly right, Jack. Acquisitions are really hard. Most M&A fails to deliver on the stated objectives. And oftentimes it's less around the financial targets not being met or maybe even the operational targets. Usually it's a cultural issue. That prevents the acquisition from being successful and delivering on those results. So we brought in 1,850 employees from Mass Mutual. We brought in close to 1,900 employees from Prudential. And as such, with these acquisitions, we've actually grown. Empower's grown from about 6,300 employees in January of 20 to over 12,000 employees today. Wow. Wow. So we've seen dramatic growth. And and that comes with challenges, obviously, as you're trying to inculcate people into your culture. I would say with personal capital, that was less around a scale acquisition. It was more around buying what we thought was a differentiated offering in the marketplace, unique capabilities and talent and expertise that really understood the direct-to-consumer market in a way that, frankly, Empower didn't. We just didn't have that embedded expertise in the organization. And so a lot of the key leaders that built the personal capital business remain with us. They're taking on broader roles in the Empower organization. And a lot of those insights and learnings are getting shared throughout throughout the Empower organization. So, and then I think what, what we've seen, just like others have seen, is, is I would say our model has evolved. It's morphed to some degree, our strategy, and that we want to be a best-in-class record keeper and administrator. But I think in many ways for our customers and prospects, that's table stakes. It's really about what are we going to do to deliver successful outcomes for the sponsor, for the intermediary, who we rely very heavily on, and then the end user. And this insatiable appetite for advice is unabated, and we continue to see it. And I think what I would say, Jack, is if you put the acquisitions aside for a moment and you look at Empower's growth organically, because it's largely a takeaway market. There's not a lot of new growth coming into the defined contribution space. We're growing at two and a half times the rate of the market. So every time we acquire a business, I actually see a stepped up growth acceleration in our organic success. And what is that value proposition? Candidly, we talk about a holistic approach to supporting the participants. We're very transparent about that. And I think that's what sponsors are looking for increasingly. They tend to be paternalistic. They want to focus on delivering outcomes for the participants. They know that a disproportionate amount of the time, their employee time, is being spent on personal financial matters. And some of, the, some of that is coming at the expense of being a productive employee at work. So what can Empower do 
in conjunction with partners that we work with, but what can we do collectively to deliver on that broader mission? And to me, that transcends record-keeping administration. Totally, totally. It's this holistic approach to how we're going to serve the customer. I know you're going to agree with this. Let me lay out the case that at least as I look at the industry and watch trends and all that sort of stuff. And frankly, you're probably the best example I can, not probably, you are the best example I can think of. So there's this convergence of what's going on in the industry between wealth management, between workplace annuities and insurance and investment management. It's all kind of coming together. And that really the place future wealth management clients start is the defined contribution workplace engagement. And that's what you've done. You've brought a lot of assets together, people, processes, all that sort of stuff. I'm sure that it wasn't easy to make it all work together and all the rest of it, but it sounds like you, if you're enjoying organic growth, you've made it work. So you've done the the ticking and tying to make it work. Talk a little bit about what you're doing. And I think personal capital, I would assume, plays an important role here. How are you winning, creating that organic growth? How are you engaging with both advisors and participants where they're becoming, they're really looking I'm assuming again, but I think I'm, it's not inaccurate to say you're pulling this all together to give a better experience, a better outcome, a, a better, and, and the opportunity, frankly, to collect assets because you've done a good job. You've earned it. So talk about that, if you would. Well, you know, here's the way I think about it. We've got 17 million Americans on our platform, and we'll probably close out 2023 with close to 18 and a half million. And that's without any future acquisitions, right? Which we can talk about that because I still think there's going to be more consolidation and more M&A in the market. We have 1.4 trillion on our platform. We can't go it alone. The demand and the expectation is too great. Even with our scale and all of our capabilities, there's no way that we can singularly meet all the needs of those 17 million customers. And so, as you know, Jack, our model is we work through and with intermediaries. So on winning these plan sponsor mandates, we do not sell direct. We don't have our own direct distribution. We work through consultants and advisors. And many of those advisors and consultants have a wealth management capability, and they're very good at it. Some of the challenges they face are the same ones that I face. They can't scale either. (laughs) So how do we come together in a way that's mutually beneficial that meets the needs of the customer. Mm -hmm. And those are the conversations that we're having with our partners. And I would just say that if you look across the Empower complex and the enterprise and the way we operate as a company, it's very much built on a partnership model. I mean, I've been very candid in saying, you know, we don't need to administer everything and we don't need to manufacture everything. In fact, we don't manufacture much at all. We work with partners. And whether they're asset managers, whether they're retirement income, Providers, insurance companies, for example. We are an insurance company, but as we look at thinking about insurance based products for the consumer, I'm not sure we want to take that balance sheet risk. I'm not sure that's where we want to place our focus. So, why not work with a world class partner and bring something unique and differentiated to market? Maybe it's co branded, maybe it's not, but that's the way we think about it. We start with the customer and work our way back in. And I think that covers the gamut, Jack. I mean, that includes the world that's evolving around alternatives right now and the role that alternatives can and I think will play in the defined contribution space and even in the retail space, we would do that through a partner, you know, working alongside. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. So as I look at the marketplace, what it looks to me, studying this fairly closely, at least at a strategic level, is that as you can engage with that that participant early on or at whatever point you engage with them, and you provide services and guidance with and through partners. So it's not you're not going alone. You're partnering very effectively and obviously successfully. But as you partner and provide services, and I'm sure you're expanding, I'd love to hear more if you if you'd like to share, but you're expanding the services available so that your partners succeed and gather more participants and gather more assets and all the rest of it. My observation is that that experience. Forget about outcome. That's a separate topic. And I, I know you're working on that. Personal capital does some great work in that regard as well. But as you are engaging with those those uh, participants and educating them and getting them comfortable and providing answers as they go along, and I'm sure you're enhancing that, and I don't mean that in any kind of pejorative way, but you own the relationship or at least are enabling the ownership of the relationship for your advisor partners. So anyway, talk about that if you would. It seems to be what you're doing. Yeah, when I talk about the strategy and how we think about things, there is this partnering element to it that I think is critical. We're not going to be successful unless we work with best-in-class providers. The one thing, though, that we won't outsource, where I think we have real expertise, and that's the user experience. And so whether that's delivered digitally, whether it's through an app or the web, or whether it's in person, we feel really strongly around our value system, the culture that we built here that we can deliver a very unique and differentiated experience. The, the, the marketplace has voted on this. We've seen it with the success that we've had. When we do exit surveys and you know post-win analysis, what we find is that the user experience that we built is viewed to be simple, elegant, intuitive, outcome-oriented, all the things that I think customers are looking for. But you touched on something that I think is very relevant, in fact, very timely in the sense that we just did we just published some findings on our platform, 4.3 million participants. And not surprisingly, what you find is they're actually pretty resilient in the sense that we've seen just a very de minimis change in their savings rate, despite this, this downturn we're experiencing, 0.2%. We have seen an uptick, I will say, in hardships and withdrawals and loans. But for the most part, the consumer has stayed the course despite the rough waters and the headwinds we face with the equity markets. But the other thing what we found, Jack, which, which you alluded to is the engaged participant, based on the way we define it, is saving at a much higher rate and is on a path to replace income in retirement at a much higher percentage than those that aren't engaged. So our challenge and opportunity is to find ways to reach out to people on their terms with relevant messaging, personalized communication that allows them to engage. And we can't do that simply over the phone, right? We can't make 17 million phone calls. So it has to be a multi-pronged, multi-dimensional approach. And that's what we're really focused on. One of the things that intrigued us when we did our due diligence on personal capital is that their customers were engaging roughly 17 times a month. Imagine that. 17 times a month, either with their advisor or through, through the web or through the app. We have defined contribution participants that don't contact us and don't engage us once a year. So imagine as an industry, if we could drive real transformational change around engagement. 
what the results could be. Wow. Why do you think that is? I'm fascinated. That's a fascinating statistic. Why do you think that is? It's enormous compared to anything else I've heard about client engagement or participant engagement. It is. And I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, when we acquired personal capital, that we took a lot of their capabilities and deployed it into our defined contribution experience so we could ideally derive the same level of engagement. It's still early yet, but we've seen a meaningful uptick. I think part of the reason is there tends to be kind of a set it and forget it mentality among a lot of Americans where they enroll in the plan and, you know, they may have auto features that are activated or they may not. But I think as an industry, we've struggled with trying to get relevant, germane information to them that's useful in a way that's consumable that would, you know, lead to them saying, I want to learn more, I want to understand more. So you yeah. almost have to sort of turn it on its head, yes. right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've thought about with my team, and I challenge them all the time, is to say, there's great direct-to-consumer companies that have produced incredible results in terms of engagement and customer loyalty, and they're not in our industry. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. But many of those practices and those techniques have application. And, and so some of it is sort of thinking outside the box and not being constrained in your thinking around this is the way we've always done it in the financial services space. Look at what Amazon Prime has done. I mean, look at what Uber has done. I mean, you can go down the list in terms of, you know, consumer-oriented companies that have been very effective at driving high levels of engagement and customer loyalty. And without that, you're just not going to get the behavior change, I guess is my point. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately and writing about it, just trying to get my head around it. Because we see this clear trend toward what we call comprehensive wealth management platforms or comprehensive advice platforms. And you have that. That's what you have. And of course, you've heard me talk and our guests of our audiences heard me talk to Agnazi about our, our relationship with Morgan Stanley. It's just doing the same thing. They're coming from a wealth management perspective, moving in your direction. You're coming from a workplace perspective and moving in their direction. Each strategy are similar, but also quite different. But one of the things that has occurred to me that we're in the midst of a, some kind of passage, inflection point, tipping point, call what you will. The wealth management business, and you and I grew up in that side of things, was pretty much a product of the month, whatever the product was. It was a mutual fund. It was later ETF, later SMA, you know, whatever the, the list of products, direct indexing, the latest rage, ESG, it's always a product that's the solution. And that's been the orientation of wealth management for a long time. And it continues to be, although I, I'm predicting, we're in the middle of a shift, I think. Whereas personal capital started with planning started with trying to understand the client's needs, very much the consumer-oriented approach as opposed to the product-oriented approach. So I'd love to hear your comments. That's my sense of what's underway here, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Look, for the most part, I think products are, it's, it's a commodity. It's a commodity. You, you can get financial service products anywhere. To me, it, it's more around bringing together that experience in a way that's, that's holistic, in a way that the end user can understand and can engage and it's the entire personal balance sheet. It's not just the asset side of the ledger, but it's also the liability side of the ledger. And how do you take all these disparate pieces and weave them together in a way that's elegant and seamless? And I think that's the silver bullet. And very few companies do it well today. I can only point to one or two that, I could, that are close. Right. 
that's how I think you get you engender loyalty and you get people to engage and ultimately get the individuals to take action and increase savings rates and diversify their holdings and all of that. And increasingly, like if you look at the survey data, it's exactly what customers want. Yes. I can show you the data. They absolutely want a holistic approach, even the defined contribution participant. Sure. I mean, how can we as a provider give thoughtful, useful information and advice if all we see is one slice of one's total holdings? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And there's no denying that there's the need for advice. You know, I, I, I just recently was on a JetBlue flight and they're a customer of ours. And I, was, I always like to talk to the pilots and the flight attendants. And I was talking to a flight attendant. And she said, you know, I love the plan. It's easy, but I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't know if, I, if what I'm doing is the right thing sure, or not. Sure. Right? Yeah. And, you know, the way we're organized is our participant services reps are not in the business of giving advice. But we do have a separate group within the company where we can provide advice. So it's important for us to get someone like that over to the right individual who can look at the options that are in the plan and reassure people or, or make suggestions based on their situation. So I think that is a, a typical response that you would get from a defined contribution participant, particularly one that's not in a managed account type structure, right? That's just investing in a diverse set of mutual funds. So I, I think that's the opportunity and the obligation, frankly, that we have as an industry. So uh, again, my our audience has, has heard me say this, but this is a perfect example of my daily conversation. So I have privilege, frankly, of talking to people like Ed, uh, many others daily about these issues, these this topic. And I'm on an education campaign, borrow your word, I've been using it lately. It's one thing to have multiple accounts and products and whatever else you have. And most people, frankly, most uh, investors really don't know what they're doing and really do need want and need need guidance. The challenge is, is how do you weave it together? Because the, the assets are spread all over the place, different tax treatment, different risk profiles. There's all sorts of different stuff. And particularly, and this really came, I'd love to hear your comments on this, particularly with COVID, as many people said, wow, I got a fat 401k and I can retire early and sick of this thing and you know, life is short and all the various things we read. Of course, now they're all shifting back to work because of inflation. <laughs> so the, the roller coaster yeah. ride of being an investor. But in any event, as I'm here and I just uh, hear it in my daily conversations, literally with people, just regular consumers, that they just want someone to help them figure it out how to put it together. You know, they don't want to know about the latest, greatest product necessarily. And fine, they, you know, people like to get off of that stuff, I suppose. But how do you put it together and how do you make sure you have more money after taxes and after inflation and after all the other things they have to consider? But what was that experience like? I would assume in your organization, you had a lot of inbound whether it was a personal capital or a power or both around. So what do I do? How do I put this together both as we're beginning COVID and then as we're moving away from it, hopefully, uh, what do I do about this? I imagine you guys got clobbered with just calls and what do I do? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You saw significant spikes in call volume and, and that sort of thing. But, but primarily people looking for reassurance, perhaps not feeling as confident and wanting to talk to someone delay any concerns that they might have. It didn't result in major portfolio changes. We didn't see this capitulation or this move to cash, so to speak, right? So in terms of asset allocation, I think participants in 401k plans, uh, savers in general, I think, have learned over the years 
that markets rise, markets fall. If in fact it is long-term money, it's important you stay the course, dollar cost average into it. So I will say the industry in conjunction with the media has done a good job, I think, in reinforcing that message because we didn't see that. And I suspect our competitors didn't see real dramatic changes there. What we've tried to do, Jack, and I go back to the opportunity that we have to leverage the aggregation engine that we have, right? Now, people need to opt into it and you know they need to see the value in it. But to the extent that they want to be able to see things all in one place and want that experience to be what I call sort of optimized aggregation, right? Not just the, sort of the static view, but you can look at things in its entirety and make some judgments and insights around fee optimization or you know, asset allocation or, you know, real specific reveals that that come out of this that can be useful to the customer. And so, you know, we're just in the midst of, you know, unveiling this, but we've got, I think, close to 13 million participants now that are using our new, improved, defined contribution experience. And increasingly, we're seeing a large percentage of those customers opt in and aggregate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now the next time they pick up that phone and they're looking for help where they say, I don't have a plan and I need a plan, the person on the other end actually would have a view, a much broader view into the investment experience that that customers have. So when you say, just to be clear for our audience, so you're talking about an aggregated view, including assets not necessarily held at... at yeah, a, held away assets. Held gotcha. away assets. So you're getting the full view and they're providing guidance on that full view. Is that what you're saying? To the extent that there is a request or need for that, yes, we, we can, we That's can great. do that. Okay. We can act as a fiduciary, if you will, in that situation. And, and again, my observation, we talk about this every day with the folks we work with across the industry, that is the future, is the aggregated view. That's what the client wants. Uh, yes. They, they, they want to buy the next great thing. They want to buy, They want to know, how do I maximize the growth of my assets so I can have more income? And how do I maximize the income on the other side of the mountain? That's right. So it sounds like you've been busy getting that. I, I think last time we spoke, you were talking about putting all that together. It sounds like that's well underway. Yeah, I'd say it's you know 90% complete. The clients at this point that don't have it are the prudential clients that are will be transitioning to our platform starting in the first quarter of next year. We're talking, before we got on the podcast, recently attended the Tiburon Conference, had many of these conversations. Uh, what you just heard, in case you were wondering, is you just heard the future of financial advice. It is that aggregated view. It is that more holistic view. Mm-hmm. In our estimation, I'm sure you would agree, it's a matter of cost, risk, tax, and Social Security. If you can get that kind of free money, if you manage those well, if you take full advantage of tax alpha, if you incorporate a, an appropriate risk model, you consider when to optimize your social security benefits. It's certainly cost. The whole industry is working on that. You have a better outcome. You have more money as you're accumulating. You have more money for income. I'm assuming that's the heart of your strategy. Absolutely. Well, this has been uh, great, Ed, as always. I had high expectations. Once again, you've exceeded them. So before we wrap up, I wanted to see if you have a few takeaways you'd like to share with the audience, things that if you were a listener, you'd want to know from, from where you sit. I think I remain really encouraged and to use the old Merrill term since I spent seven years of my career at Merrill Lynch, bullish, if you will, on our industry in general and defined contribution business in particular. I think we can continue to work in a spirit of cooperation with 
policyholders and regulators, you know, to take the business to a whole new level and expand access. I also think over the next 20 years, with the transformation of wealth occurring in this country, I think the wealth management business, however you want to define it, is going to be one of the greatest industries in America. So pretty sanguine about that. I think the other couple things I would say is, despite the headlines, I think investors are pretty resilient. We've seen that in this and in, in some of the market downturns. We're certainly seeing it now. Secondly, I would say the the appetite for advice is unabated. It's insatiable. It can't be understated. And I think as providers of products and services, you've got to be able to do that and do it well, or mm-hmm. you're not going to be mm-hmm. in business. And then the third thing I would say is you're going to hear a lot more from Empower over the next 90 to 120 days. There'll be more <laughs> that we'll share with you. <laughs> Terrific. I can't wait to hear. I'm a, a real fan and students. Look forward to that and exciting. So um, as always, Ed, great pleasure to catch up and get your uh, perspective at all. Congratulations on the great success you're enjoying. I'm sure much more is to come. And at this point in our podcast, my favorite thing to do is to ask people what they do outside of work that is something they're particularly passionate about or excited about. Last time around, I think you were, I don't know, it was high school or college, you wanted to be governor of Florida want to get into <laughs> politics. But I'm curious, what do you do outside of work? Well, let me say about Governor of Florida. I think Ron DeSantis has that locked up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's pretty well said. Well, you know what, Jack, I've got four adult children now. My youngest just graduated college. I've got two in New York City, two in Boston, one married, one engaged. So I would say our life revolves quite a bit around them. Yes. You know, yes. we all live busy lives, but Putting family first is really important to me. I don't always succeed, but I I work hard at it every day. (laughs) Well, I didn't know that we shared that. I have four sons in their uh, 30s now, all but one with uh, either a wife or a long-term partner. And so I can completely relate. And I don't know if you're fortunate enough as yet to have grandchildren, but that's the best yet. I have almost eight and a five-year-old boy and a girl that... uh, for just uh, the light of my life. So I completely get what you're talking about. It's all, all about family. So thanks for sharing that. So Ed, once again, thanks. It's been a great conversation. I look forward to our next. For our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Ed, it's been a real pleasure. I look forward to the next time we have a chance to chat. Thank you, Jack. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.